This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. The Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotti on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Perotti, and welcome to this installment of the Safety Doc Podcast. With me today, attorney James Sibley coming to us from California. He is our guest. We will focus on exempting students with special needs from safety instruction and safety drills. So Jim is a potent advocate for special needs students and their families. Welcome to the show, Jim, and tell us about yourself. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on, David. Um, As you indicated, I'm a special education attorney. Uh, Our firm, uh, Tolner Law Offices, uh, exclusively represents students in special education matters, uh, regional center disputes, and other disability rights issues. So, Jim, um, something that I've been seeing uh, as a university instructor as somebody who consults with school districts, is this phenomena of staff or parents or administrators exempting students with disabilities from safety instruction and safety drills, whether that be an intruder drill, a fire drill, or a tornado drill. And in my 17 years as a university instructor, this past year was the first time that anybody ever introduced that to me, that this was a practice. And it wasn't just one student, it would be four, five, six students would say, well, we do this in our district. And my response would be, well, help me to understand how you do this. There were typically two methods. One was that they would use the IEP, the Individualized Education Plan for a Student with a Disability. They would write it into the IEP that the student did not have to participate in safety drills or safety instruction. Or they would use some type of district created opt-out form. So if you can help us to understand your experiences with with the IEP and also is it even possible to do this through the IEP or like through a district opt-out form to say, for example, my child, you know, with an intellectual disability should not participate in safety drills and then the school agrees and says, nope, 
okay, they're not going to participate in the drills or the instruction. So help us. So, so many people listening today, they're, they're not aware of the IEP process and, and what that looks like from a legal perspective. So if you can help us clarify that. Sure. And, and I think one of the issues you're dealing with here is the confusion that there's a number of different areas of law that cross over in this. Um, the IEP process is uh, under a particular law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, and its IEP stands for Individualized Education Plan. And the idea is that a, a student with a disability, a qualifying disability, and, and that amounts to anywhere from 10 to 14% of the students in America, um, there's a team that's put together to look at how the presentation of the education can be altered, adapted to make it more effective for them. Um, and that process, it's, it's one of those things that has multiple terms. IEP is the team that creates a document, which also is termed the IEP. It's the meeting where that occurs. Uh, but the idea is, is it's a place where the special strengths and weaknesses of each individual student are uh, considered to see how they fit into our education system. Our, our education system is sort of a you know, in industrialized, one-size-fits-all assembly line, and right. not everybody fits fits on it very well. Um, so in that process, one of the things that happens is there there is a lot of leeway uh, based upon an individual student's needs to adapt what's typically called modify or accommodate um, various parts of the education process to better fit them. And, and that can be something as simple as um, this student has ADHD, they need to be in a, a separate room with less distractions to take a test. One of the things in the IEP process that really fits into what you're discussing is uh, there's a fairly standardized part of that process dealing with any sort of required state testing. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of schools uh, see this as just an adaptation of that. You know, if I could sit down and say, well, this student um, isn't going to go through the standard, you know, every two years they take an English and math test or is going to get special accommodations for that testing, you know, there's typically a, a standard form as part of the IEP process where you check a few boxes and you know, we all agree that um, they aren't going to take the same test. Right. So it's easy when you have that sort of adaptation to stretch it out and say, well, we could do that for anything. And exactly. it doesn't quite work that way. Um, because, as I said, there are multiple areas of law that intertwine in this. The IDEA is only one of them. Um, you also have the Rehabilitation Act. Typically, you'll hear it referred to as Section 504 because that's the section that involves education. It's a more of a civil rights statute. And then, of course, the American with Disabilities Act. Um, and while many times particular actions may cross over in those areas, you can't violate any of them. So you can't do something in an IEP that would violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's really where the problem that you're talking about comes into play. Um, the ADA is something that your typical school administrator knows a little about. They know they have to have ramps, 
for people in wheelchairs, that the you know parking spaces have to be so wide. Um, but that's sort of the limit of ADA. They don't always see how that also applies to how students are treated and the accommodations for students. Um, and that's really where emergency preparedness comes into play. Uh, because there is this particular section of the ADA that requires that you can't exclude individuals with disabilities from emergency preparedness activities. I think it's Chapter 7 of Article 2. Um, and, and that's really uh, where the process you're talking about would run afoul. Um, I think almost more importantly on a gut level, it, it's just inherently wrong. Right. Uh, and the scary part is there's several reasons why the process of exemption come up. But the one that's most frightening is they come up because in the process of conducting drills, something goes wrong. Yes. And, of course, the answer to that is not to exempt the person because, you know, the, the kid in the wheelchair got left behind, um, but to figure out, how do we adapt this system to deal with the needs of kids with individual problems and differences? And Jim, when I asked students, uh, graduate students, uh, that question of, well, why did you make the decision? Sometimes it's not even, well, when we have drills, this particular student um, has not responded favorably, you know, like they become very agitated or something. The answer is, we think the student might respond this way, so instead of even allowing them to demonstrate competency with a drill, or at least give us ideas of what went well and what didn't go well so we can work on those through the IEP process or just work on those in general with the student, it is completely assuming that the student is just going to fall apart and not handle this drill. Um, now, personally, uh, I work at the Wisconsin School for the Blind, and we have students who have uh, comorbid conditions, um, you know, intellectual disability plus blindness, autism plus blindness. We instruct on drills, and, and they respond to the drills very well. We actually had a two-alarm fire at the facility last May during lunch. So you never run a fire drill during lunch, ever if you're an administrator, but this was during lunch. Students exited the building, and some of this, um, you know, students were still in hallways coming down, found their exits, knew where the sidewalks were, staff understood what to do, and the students handled it very well because we had practiced it. Yet, from an outside perspective, there would be every argument in the world if you proposed that and said, listen, we're going to do this drill during a lunch of people saying, don't do it because the students aren't going to handle it and whatever. And this was an authentic event. So, Jim, what you come back to is we're talking about drills, but when this happens in real life, whether it be at school or whether it be at that ch child's home or suddenly there's a lockdown in the neighborhood because something is happening next door to where that child lives, um, they don't have the skills for this. They haven't gone through this, and we end up then with situations that can turn dire very fast because we've never given people the opportunity. I mean, kids are in school ages 3 through 21. We forget about the child when they're 38, when they're 42, you know, when they become an adult and they're in situations. Um, so help me, and I, I took the notes on the ADA. I wasn't aware of that, so thank you uh, for sharing because I believe um, 
I believe that IEP teams don't understand the envelope of discretion of the IEP team. And, and here's, here's an example I'm going to share with you. So when I was a director of special education, I had a father who uh, came into the IEP team meeting and said, my middle school son um, has been taking things from Walgreens and his son had an intellectual uh, disability. And he said to us, I want written in the IEP that if my son takes anything from Walgreens, they need to call me first before they confront him or before they contact law enforcement. And I said, well, we can't do that as an IEP process. I don't control what happens at Walgreens. Now, granted, everybody recognized around the table that this boy was not doing this with intent to steal. This was just something where he saw, um, you know, something that he wanted from the store. And typically when he, you know, wanted from something from the store, he had given it to the parents. And if it was something they agreed upon, they paid for it and took it out. But now he was getting older, so he was going to the store sometimes on his own. But uh, the parent was so convinced that if we wrote this in the IEP, and he took the IEP to Walgreens, and Walgreens could not contact law enforcement or could not stop his, fr- his son at the door, they would have to call him. And I understood that, and I, I understood where he was coming from, but then the team was very confused of, of, well, does the IEP allow this? And the father was very determined that through his research that the IEP indeed did allow this. Um, but of course it wouldn't, it wouldn't allow you to supersede into, to areas like that. So, um, how do we, uh, so, so Jim, in situations that we've, we've just discussed, uh, let's say that you're talking to, uh, a parent, um, parent comes to you, says, Jim, my child is being excluded from safety drills and the school is saying, you know, we're, we're doing this because, yeah, we don't, your, your son, your daughter isn't going to respond favorably to these drills. It's just in their best interest that we exclude them from the drills. Um, how do you, how do you help the parent have that discussion back with the school of, of saying, yeah, this isn't in the best interest of my child. And also legally, this isn't something that you should be doing. Because I, I, I see this process where, Parents, they're reassured by the school. It's okay. This is this is a process. Or here's a form. <laughs> and I think you've kind of alluded to the fact that this district form really holds no power at all. And it it's it's ironic because people will bring these forms in and they'll show me, they'll be, David, we have the form. And I said, you just can't create a form. And then it becomes, you know, a bona fide legal process. I'm like, you, you, you don't have that. But Help help me walk through that because I I struggle with helping articulate that back to people of here's what you can do through the IEP process and ADA and here's also what you can't do. Right. Well, I mean, the you hit the nail on the head in terms of you know, the IEP process is a school process. You know, schools have limited jurisdiction. You know, it comes out a lot in terms of uh, you know situations, school threats, things like that. Is in most circumstances, schools are really restricted to what happens on campus or during a school activity, with a, a few rare exceptions. Um, but to me, and you know, even though I'm at a very confrontational end of this business, um, for parents, I always think that the the best part of uh, best way to deal with the school um, 
is non-confrontational. It's more inquiry-based. Yeah, and, and so you know, I think that the most effective way to approach it, um, to get the most response from the school that's positive, you can walk in and say, look, the ADA says you can't do this, and you know maybe they call their lawyers, maybe they argue. But to me, the question is, well, are these fire drills designed, or tornado drills, or active shooter drills, are they designed to increase and enhance the safety of the students on the campus? And if the answer is yes, is there some reason you don't want my child to be safe? Because I'd like him to be safe, and I'm assuming you do too. So um, what the IEP process does allow for, and this is very common, you know, it can expand to include a lot of different things. Transportation issues are very common in IEPs. You know, does someone need particular equipment on a bus? Health plan. Does the person have an, an allergy and they need to be able to have access to an EpiPen? Are they diabetic? I mean, sure. IEPs deal with all the different variances of, of kids, which is, is a lot. You know, no two are alike. Um, and, and this is something a lot of times I think you really hit it on the head. Um, far too often schools and parents underestimate what our kids are capable of. Um, my son has autism. Um, he's 20 now, but you know, he wasn't 20 all the time. And, you know, he, uh, he, he was in scouts for most of his life. Um, and he, we have been through emergency preparedness drills. He's prepared fire escape plans for our house. He's put together emergency kits. We've been, you know, at summer camps where there's mandatory fire drills and escape plans. Uh, we've actually been at a summer camp during an emergency situation when I was one of the leaders where we had to evacuate um, because the, a river that split the camp in two was rising, was going to okay. wash all the bridges out. Um, you know, so I, I, I've seen this both in practice and in action. And almost universally, people are surprised at how much students rise to the occasion. Um, I, I think of sort of an anecdote, I think it was a school in Ohio where there was a teacher with a disability. And she went to explain to her class that, you know, I, I'm very concerned that, you know, in the event of an emergency, because of my limitations, um, I might not be able to be there for you like some of the other teachers. And one of the kids raised their hand and said, don't worry about it, Miss So-and-so. We've already talked about this. If something okay. happens, we're carrying you out. Oh, that's um, great. And that's very much to me. Um, from a practical sense of what I've seen. I worked with kids all my life, and uh, you really do underestimate them. Um, and to me, if, if the purpose of the drill is to enhance the safety, to assure a calm response, to have uh, you know, a uniform area people gather to so you can make sure everybody's out, there's no reason to exclude a student with a disability. You know, but if that child has specific issues that raise concern, the answer is not exclude them. How do we address it? You know, a child, it, it could be as different as the kids are different. Physical disabilities you know, seem more obvious. You know, is there uh, a place, if there's a closet or room all the kids are supposed to go into for some sort of lockdown drill? You know, does that fit the kid's wheelchair? Um, I, I actually read a story of a of a young girl with cerebral palsy who, in a lockdown drill, 
her classmates picked her up out of her wheelchair and dragged her into the closet when they realized it wouldn't fit, but she got injured in the process. Okay. Um, you know, so it's really thinking through what are the potential problems and how can we address those up front and how can we better prepare this child to make sure that it, it, it works? Um, because, yeah, and I think, you know, in the, the book you have coming out, you talk a lot about the practicalities of, you know, you can't really train for disasters because by their very nature, they're chaotic. Um, but you can train to be calm and address the situation. Um, and that's really what the concept of drills is. You know, nothing's ever going to go exactly like the drill. I have a background in law enforcement and, uh, I spent almost 30 years as a criminal prosecutor, and six of those I ran a criminal high-tech crime task force. And uh, I always remember one of my favorite sergeants. We'd have a big debriefing for a search warrant, and everybody would finish, and you've talked about all the ramifications and what you're going to have and where you're going to stage. And then he'd just stop and go, okay, what do we do when all that goes to crap? Right, right. <laughs> because that's the that's the planning process is, you know, Mike Tyson said everybody comes into the ring with a plan and they get punched in the nose. Uh, yeah, that's really what you're wanting to develop in the kids is the resilience to not forget that you're an active party in this and, um, you know, follow instructions, do what you're trained, but don't put your brain in neutral. Thank you for tuning in to the safety doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So, Jim, another question that comes up to me, that, that comes up in discussions that I have with educators is um, I, I ask, you know, I said, well, why don't you use the IEP as a tool to write a goal or objectives that the student will um, understand, you know, safety instruction and these ob ob objectives, you know, below, or that they'll understand um, how to access the school's threat reporting system and that they'll demonstrate how to report a threat, whether it's a threat of harm to self or others. And, um, and people will almost always say, well, the IEP is not for that. <laughs> the IEP is not for those types of things. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I, it would be if that is a skill, especially when a student is turning age 14 or older, when you're looking at post-secondary and um, you, why wouldn't that be an appropriate goal? And also situational awareness, um, being able to identify what is happening 
around you is is critical. And, and we can teach these things um, without having to buy, you know, one thousand dollar kits on situational awareness. There are, you know, Sir Baden Powell's scouting handbook with all the different activities that you can do. And you're probably familiar with some of these, you know, things um, taking a table and having between a student and, and you, you know, you pick out five things, you put them on a, a blank table, you cover it up with a towel. And then a minute later you say, you know, what, what are the five things that we had out there? And, and, you know, you recall them and then you change it out and do some other things. And you get more sophisticated with that process. Maybe when you get up to 10, you say, instead of describing what it is, tell me another thing it can be used for. You know, so, well, if it's a spoon, you could use it for eating, but you could also use it for digging or something like that. Um, but, you know, these are things which it, it's just a you, you can teach it. People also, you know. They're, they they'll ask me where do we get the kits? Where do we get the kits? How do we how do we teach this? What course do I have to go to? And anything of them like just, you're you're thinking too much. I mean, um, these are very fundamental concepts that we we instruct. But I'm going to come back to that point because I do have people immediately who throw up their hands and say the IP is not for that. The IP it's not for safety instruction. How would you respond to that? Uh, well, I know there's one group of people who disagree, um, and and that would be the justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, in their most recent decision, Andrew F., which came down in 2017, they were very clear that the, the responsibility of the school is to develop appropriately ambitious goals in both academics and functional life skills. Um, and as you pointed out, there's a a, a transition period in the IEP process when you turn 14, where you begin uh, looking at post-secondary, and there are three components of that transition that are required by law to be considered, and that is um, the post-secondary educational goals. You know, can we prepare this student for uh, some sort of you know college, junior college, career and vocational goals, and independent life skills. I mean, that's written into the IDEA, and there are really fewer, more important independent life skills than safety skills. Um, and you, you mentioned any particular examples. I, I was in an IEP last week, okay, um, and it, the student happened to be very severely intellectually disabled. Um, even though he's in middle school, they're still working on having him recognize and identify the letters of the alphabet. And he's had that in his IEP for years and is yet to meet that goal. And, and I stepped in and said, well, why don't we think about a goal that's related to that reading, identifying words, identifying letters, but will actually help him, like identifying signs for poison, danger, wrong way. Um, and there was some discussion, and, and I just said, wouldn't that be better for him in terms of his quality of life, his safety? Uh, there's not much of an argument that it wouldn't be. You know, it would be great if he could say A, B, C, D, right? But it's even better if he could say danger, closed, wrong way, poison, um, and it got written in his IEP goal. Um, so the purpose of the IEP is to help the team that's educating that student prepare them for life which includes academics, but it also includes functional life skills. Um, you know, transportation is commonly 
an IEP goal in transition. You're teaching someone to read the maps and learn the bus system, identify a bus, what's appropriate to get on it, deal with the situation of the people you might run into on the bus. Um, you know, that's a very practical goal that you see in a lot of IEPs. There's really nothing impractical about putting a goal in that this individual will be safe in an emergency situation in school. Okay. So when you, when you mentioned that to the team, um, did some eyes open up like, Oh, we haven't, we haven't gone here before. Um, very much. So. Okay. Uh, you could see them all sort of look at each other. Their lawyer was there. They all sort of looked oh, at her okay. <laughs> and, uh, it, but you know, as I said, you know, this is, you know, to me, it was a collaborative process, and, and my yes. question was, you know, wouldn't that help him? You yes. know, isn't that a lot more important to him down the line? And frankly, to you as the staff that's trying to keep him safe. And they all sort of shrugged and nodded and said, yeah. So, you know, they went back to the table and they drafted a goal. And one of the things also uh, that I observe is um, students just aren't these discussions don't happen in college uh, prep programs. And a lot of times they're just not part of a professional learning community. And it, so when they do come up, it's the first time that these discussions come up of, you know, we can use the IEP in, in different ways, or we can utilize the IEP in different ways for the whole, the benefit of the whole child. And um, that's, and to me, that's different. Um, because the discussions in, for example, where I'm at in Wisconsin, people get very linear. They get, you know, we have reading scores and what's on the school report card. The school report card is math and, you know, reading and we don't have anything for school connectedness and whatever. So if we really have to concentrate here and that's where I help people at least have that discussion of, you know, we need to look at everything, including safety. Thankfully, safety is getting much more attention at a state level. Um, versus, you know, five or 10 years ago. But people don't know how to do this. There isn't um, a very useful handbook, the professional educator leader standards. I went through all of those. And I, uh, the, so it's a third revision. It came out, I believe, a year ago. And I, I only found the word safe maybe one time. I wrote about it in, in the book. I don't know it exactly. But um, it's still something that isn't, isn't um, part of practice it's getting there but like what you did is you introduced it now that'll become part of practice in that district going forward they'll have that conversation they'll think about it the neighboring district might not and so i also my perception is we don't have a lot of guidance um, necessarily from a state level coming in to help districts or even help parents be aware of kind of the discussion that we're having today so i mean why i think this discussion is so important um, let me go back. You brought up the story about when you were camping and the water is rising and, you know, the bridges are being threatened. So tell me the process you went through to help or, or the people went through to stay calm and also the innate, um, ability that showed in, for example, you said your son was there, just able to handle it where, Unless that happens, people are like, I'm not sure how anyone's going to respond to this. And I've always said systems will develop. So that's a fascinating story. I, I want to hear more about that. 
Uh, well, it is. And, and you know, my son, it, like many kids with autism, um, you know, he doesn't like loud noises. He doesn't like surprises. Uh, he very much, and he's got some communication and social issues. Uh, but, you know, this this was a troop that had been together a long time. These were kids that he'd been with a long time, kids that had been together a long time. And, you know, when the word came out that, um, you know, the river was rising and we were all going to have to get over to the one side and gather together because we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, it, it went ridiculously smoothly because, frankly, Scouts prepares kids for that. Yes. You know, they know they've got their own organizational structure. So, you know, for me as one of the leaders, you know, it was for me to turn to the youth leaders and say, okay, get the patrols together. You know, you talk to your assistant patrol leaders and the patrol leaders, get everybody together, get them lined up. I want them here in five minutes. And uh, everybody had a buddy um, because that's the system that's taught there. Everybody looked to make sure that the person that's supposed to be there with them is there. And then you know, it was a very smooth process. We went into one of the big dining halls. They broke out some cheese crackers and, you know, playing cards, playing games and board games and cards. And I'm sure probably every kid from that camp that summer remembers that more than any other summer camp experience. <laughs> we spent yeah, yeah. you know, three or four hours as we watched the river come up and wash over this bridge that we walked every day. And, um, you know, but it, there was no panic. There was no concern because they had already been through the process of understanding that you know, when we're confronted with a challenge, we get together, we listen to our leaders, we work together as a team. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, Baden-Powell called scouting a game with a purpose, and it really is designed for that. And it was things we threw out them routinely. Um, you know, our job as adults, we always felt, was to make sure that they had a good, solid program supports and that it was going to be safe, but not to spoon-feed them. And, uh, and, you know, so the kids that we had there had been through challenges where we'd said, you know, in the middle of a hike, okay, you know, Joey just fell down and sprained his ankle. What are we going to do? Yeah. And they looked to me and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not here right now. You know, you guys walked off to the side. There's five of you. Joey's got his ankle sprained. Show me what you're going to do. And, you know, they pulled it together and create a little, of something to hold his ankle together, something they can pull him on, and uh, and they have a great time doing it. And, and in that process, they learn not to panic, but to think. Yeah, I, that that's a wonderful story. And and you know, coming out uh, into the discussion of here's here's what to expect what to expect, you know, this is, it's not going to be typical at Bridges, you know, things are going to be changing and things like that. When you tell people ahead of time, what to expect, even if it's very, you know, unusual, uncomforting, like, okay, this bridge, you know, which we had relied upon won't be available, but people tend to handle that news well, because you've shared that they've, they've practiced for uh, atypical situations. Um, so getting, translating that into, schools um as far as, as school safety drills here's something i i tend to see <laughs> also um in my consulting with school districts i'll one of the requirements i'll ask them to do uh, one of their drills they can pick whether it be a fire drill intruder tornado whatever but i said i want to observe one of your drills 
and then we'll we'll talk about it afterwards. And they said, okay, it's here's we do every drill sixth hour ten minutes in. I said, <laughs> okay. Um, and then of course afterwards, part of the discussion is you know you need to do drills in the morning. You need to do drills at the end of the day, lunchtime, during recess, times that are going to be um, unusual uh, for students, but then they'll adjust to it. Like you need to vary things up. So it, for the very situations, you know, that you said, because, you know, that fire drill, if it's an authentic fire, it's not going to happen 10 minutes in the sixth hour. It might happen, you know, right away at the start of the day as the buses are pulling up. Um, Jim, help me understand the potential legal implications for an IEP team. So maybe, you know, talking about the school members of a team that, um, re- I, I guess, that choose to exempt a child from safety drills um, that make that determination during the IEP process. Now, I know the parent is, is a part of the process, um, and what I, you know, think probably more than often happens is it's the positionality of the school. I mean, it, it's difficult for a parent to disagree with a school, the entire school system, because they're thinking these folks know what they're doing, they know these systems, so I guess I'm going to go along with it. Um, actually, I had a parent reach out to me from the East Coast who went through an IEP meeting and said, yeah, there, I, I, was, I just went along with a lot of things that I didn't agree with, my wife and I, and kind of replayed these things, and I said, oh, yeah, like, and I said, why? You know, you're, you're both, you know, professionals, and he said, it's just, it's the positionality. We don't want to be the ones to rock the boat in the district. We assume that they know what they're going to do. We can follow up with them after the meeting. And But what are, what are the implications that can happen? And I, and I guess I'll lead into this saying, you know, I've been an expert legal witness. You're um, an attorney. So we, we have some, I have some experience, you have a ton of experience with this, but what, what can happen? I, some, I, Okay, and I say this because people will say, if anything happens, the school has my back. Like the, the people who will show me, here, Dave, we have our form when we exempt students, and, and you know, we'll go through why on different levels. This isn't right. You know, we need to work in the best interest of student, plus also you're stretching and interpreting, interpreting this in a way that, that's not accurate. But they'll say, some, sometimes they'll say, if anything happens, David, the school's got my back. I'm like, oh, okay. Help me to understand that um, that kind of bliss that that some people operate in, because that's not the case when I get called in um, in an expert witness role in situations <laughs> that the school has the the back. I don't see that, and you know, I think people believe there's that there's a shield of acting, um, you know, with with this coverage of the school that. It just gives a false impression um, to not act in the best interest of the student and not use appropriate discretion and not in not to challenge things. I, that's another thing, Jim. I mean, people if if the t- if the meeting isn't going well and they a team member senses that that they need to say we need to pause and look further into this or I need to you know we need to meet with the LEA or we need to meet with the administrator because you know we need to be more informed instead of just rushing through this and coming to the final page of the meeting and in. You know, it's not a race. An IEP meeting is not a race. So, uh, no, it's absolutely not. Uh, you can, although a lot of times they you know, like to put time limits on it, but 
you have those time limits run, you set another meeting. Um, you know, to me, the important thing is, are we really there just to punch some legal, you know, check off some legal boxes? Or are we there to help this child? Um, because those are two very different things. And I think what all too often what schools do is they do things to comply with what lawyers have said they have to do. I mean, anyone who's had to sit through the god-awful sexual harassment training videos that uh, you have to watch, you know, knows what it's like. I mean, nobody ever walked out of one of those thinking, boy, I've been enlightened now. Um, all they did was they got a certificate they could hand in that now the insurance is a little bit lower because everybody's been through that. You know, way too many things within the schools and other government entities are driven by the fear of, of lawyers and litigation and and liability issues. Um, and and too few of them are driven by, you know, what's our real mission here? Um, you know, we're, we're here to educate children, and part of that is to have them be safe. Um, I think one of the concerns in this area is there is a fear among school administrators and staff of of expanding the IEP process, um, most times it is constrained well beyond what the law actually considers. Um, you know, most few IEP teams will, in the middle of a meeting, tell parents, so, you know, by the way, we have obligations to your child in terms of extracurricular activities. You know, would you be interested in trying out for a sports team? You know, how about grad night? We don't want, you know, you, you don't want Janie to miss out on the grad night trip, but what's that going to take for her to be able to be successful? Right. Um, yeah, I went through this with my son. You know, our, he loves amusement parks, and his school was going to Universal Studios. And you know, I just said, you know, I, I just took it as a for granted. So, you know, what's in what's in plan so that Matthew can go on the trip to Universal Studios? You'll get on a bus with the rest of the senior class travel eight hours down there, spend, you know, an entire night at a closed-down amusement park with kids from all over the, the country and get back. And uh, and they came up with a plan. He had a great time. When they found out that he his friends found out he gets a disability pass that gets him up on the front of the line quicker, he had a lot more friends than he ever had before. Sure. Um, and, you know, it, it 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 went perfectly well. Everybody had a good time. It wasn't a giant burden. And he got to have the experience of being just one of the kids for that night. Um, and that's the real issue here. And there is some downside. You know, for one, anybody who's been part of an organization, um, the organization's got my back mindset goes only so far. Um, there's the flip side of it, which is, okay, who can we throw under the bus to cover the organization and point out that they got it wrong? Um, and you don't want to be the one in that position. Um, so, you know, if the buck is stopping with you, pass that up the chain. If someone else is going to say no, um, because particularly if it's if it feels wrong, if it seems wrong, there is liability here. I mean, there have been a number of cases where districts have been sued because children have been left behind during actual emergencies or even drills. Um, and, you know, there, I know there's at least one case out of Florida about four or five years ago where someone in a wheelchair was left behind during a fire drill because they didn't have appropriate transportation, no way to get her down staircases when the elevators were automatically turned off as part of the process. Right. Um, 
And that ended up with a lawsuit and the school ended up having to settle. It was confidential, but I'm uh, guaranteeing you that there was probably some big zeros on the end of that because it was the obligation of the school, um, you know, both morally, ethically, and legally to assure that child's safety. And if that drill was intended to make that child safer, then she should have been a part of it, and she should certainly never have been left behind. And and that's not a unique situation. If you, you know, just do a Google search, you know, disabled child left behind during emergency, you'll see way too many stories. Um, and, you because know, you think about it, and it's even more concerning because more than any other kid in the school, the odds of a child with a disability not being in a classroom with that teacher and all that group, the way they've trained at the time of an actual emergency, is far greater. I mean, your typical IEP will break down how much time a student spends um, mainstreamed with typical developing peers, you know, and how much time they spend with special day class. But that doesn't account for the fact that there are many times pull in um, you know, oftentimes they might have to leave the classroom because they're dysregulated and part of their IEP is to give them a sensory break where they walk outside, they take some deep breaths, they do wall push-ups. Um, you know, the d- disabled child is probably twice as likely to be not where you think they're supposed to be at the time of an emergency as any neurotypical kid in the school. Um, and that's something that even all safety plans tend to ignore. What happens to the kid that got the, the hall pass that's you know, returning the milk to the cafeteria that's in the bathroom? Right. Um, and, you know, it makes it so much easier if up front you think about what are the concerns during an emergency or a practice for this particular child? Are we worried about sensory dysregulation? Are we worried about their ability to communicate because it's not just the emergencies that place disabled children at risk all too many times what places them at risk is the very thing the rest of us are waiting for the emergency responders you know i i heard a uh, an interview with one of the parkland kids that was a survivor he had spectrum as was his brother and when the shooting went down, he was actually out of class, going to where he was supposed to pick up his brother and take him back uh, into class, getting ready for pickup at the end of the day. And suddenly they're being yelled at by teachers, get in here, get in here, get in here. And then these, he described the process of, you know, the police coming in with guns and yelling and screaming, you know, put your hands up, put your hands up. And, and, and thinking about, you know, this, this, particular kid was very articulate and aware that he was on the autism spectrum, but that there were other kids that were more impacted. And he talked about worrying about the other kids. You know, what if they don't put their hands up? Um, That's a very real thing. You know, not all of our law enforcement is trained to deal with people with communication difficulties, you know, whether it's somebody who's hearing impaired or someone that's uh, selective mutism. Um, you know, they're trained for people to listen to their directions and respond appropriately. And, you know, living with a disabled child, I could tell you that's not how life is. Uh, appropriate response is not always in their, in their sweet spot. Um, 
So it really is something that needs to be thought out because that child's every bit is at risk when the emergency responders are going through as they were in the actual emergency. Um, and that's things that have to be thought through. You know, is there, you know, it goes beyond what we're talking about here. Obviously, many law enforcement agencies are stepping up and getting training in how to address someone that's that's nonverbal, someone that's oppositional, um, someone that has, um, particularly in an emergency situation, engages in unusual movements. Um, you know, an emergency situation, an armed police officer running into a kid that's flapping his arms like this when he's being told right or or what if his reaction is to stuff his hands in his pants or in his pocket when he's being told to keep them where i can see them um you know there's a lot of concerns uh involving children with different types of disabilities in emergency situations and the best time to deal with those is at that iep meeting you know where you've got a lot of calm people ideally sitting at a table to think it through um, and yeah, I'm, part I, of the problem, I, I have to, you know, part of the problem does come from the parent side. You know, parents are very protective of the children with disabilities. They're very aware. Um, sometimes even the parents themselves place limits on them that are beyond what are necessary. And many times I'm going to assume that at those IEP meetings, it could even be the parent saying, well, you know, can he be exempted from those drills? Um, and, and that's really the point where it's the school's job to step up and, and say, well, the drills are really intended to keep him safe. So why don't you help us understand him so that we can come up with a plan as part of his IEP for how we can prepare them? Um, you know, and that's very real. You know, the, the, the process of the drills themselves can become traumatic, you know, particularly in light of some of these bizarre, uh, you know, real life scenarios that uh, various consulting groups are proposing. I I think just the last week I was reading about some teachers getting shot with airsoft guns as part of the process of teaching them how to deal with emergency situations. Um, It's a little bit what you said is that schools very much want someone to handle them a package. It reminds me of the old round table commercial, you know, making fun of other pizza restaurants. I go to the fridge, I get out the box. You right. know, it's, no, no, no. We, we, we cut real tomatoes. We, uh, no, we go to the fridge, I get out the box. Um, you know, schools are comfortable with that. You know, if somebody comes to them and says, here's our package, it's, you know, it's this many hours, it's this many dollars, um, and, and we, you know, here's our credentials behind it. And they know that that will satisfy their liability requirements. It'll make their attorneys happy. It'll make the school board happy. Sometimes that's all they want. You know, when really what we want is something that will keep our kids safe. Um, and, and there's way too many things out there that are not only not making them safer, they're traumatizing them themselves. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. 
Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Yeah, and, and Jim, I think what you bring up. So that was uh, that was an elementary school in Indiana this past week where they had the hyper uh, simulation of the intruder drill, and then asked staff, or I don't know if they asked staff, basically brought staff into the room and told them to get down, and then shot them with soft pellets um, and leaving them with welts and, and so forth, which have been well, you know, documented on the internet. Um, it, you know, different stories, but. Um, I go back to the scientific method in that as a researcher, and actually I was asked to do an article um, by School Business Affairs International um, just this morning on, on this topic and of, of what this all means for schools and also should we be looking at some type of institutional review board process for school safety drills. So at a university level, uh, when I did my PhD, and, and this has been around, um, you know, for 70 years at the university levels, kind of came in after the Milgram exper experiments of applying the electric shocks after a student would get something wrong. <laughs> you know, let's get, a, get away from Stanford that. Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now they call those, what, experiences instead of experiments. But um, so you go through this whole means of is there any potential harm to subjects, and if so, um, how will you mitigate that? And then, and then there's the threshold where the committee just says, no, you're not going to do this as, as research. But we don't use that for drills. So these drills start to, to get pretty, um, pretty wild, as you said. I have participated firsthand in drills. There's one picture in my book where I actually have a 9 millimeter. I'm not a police officer. I, they gave me a, a gun. They gave me a SWAT coat. I drove in in a squad car. Um, all things that were just crazy, and I'll and I'll be honest, it was adrenaline like you wouldn't believe. I mean, twelve hours of nonstop drills. We took a not, but the drill team had a pellet gun and took out a window with the pellet gun, incidentally, from the inside. And um, people, are, it was it was painful getting hit. I got thrown up against a wall. Um, I was simulating a teacher. Um, coming out from a classroom saying, you have to get my kids out of here. And one of the officers threw me up against the wall. Um, I knew that. I anticipated that still. I mean, it. Well, I was sore for weeks. I was on the floor with blood placed around me, fake blood like the Halloween blood. And officers were running over me as if I was, you know, shot and um, stepped on my hand, you know. And um, it was... But at the time, I was so convinced this was the right way to do things. Looking back, nothing of a scientific method. We never asked ahead of time, sat down with police saying, what are we trying to get out of this? Who are the students? You know, what do we want the staff to learn? What do we want the students to learn? And then nothing afterwards of saying, 
what was our baseline and how did things change from baseline? Basically, it was like, good job, everybody, and we'll do this again next year. Just completely insane. And the fact that I counter this, I, I always bring up the argument now, I teach superintendents, um, we, we, we go through legal issues. So it's not a superintendent law class, because again, I'm not an attorney, but we can, we can explore different legal issues going on that's how superintendents are responding to those. We have a section on safety. And um, one, of, one of the areas that they struggle with is they said, you know, we, 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 we don't know how to counter this argument when everybody is pushing us to do these hyper-realistic drills because parents want to see them. They want to see photos of, you know, that the police were in front of the school, you know, doing this drill, pictures of kids done up in makeup because to them that's tangible, that's preparation. To me, that's over the top. That's drill-induced trauma, Dan Frosch, F-R-O, SH of Wall Street Journal for 10 years has been documenting um, numerous instances of litigation because of hyperrealistic drill trauma. But um, I asked this question. I said, you know, if you, you have your tornado drills, um, do you have everybody, you know, get into the hallway, bring out the barn fan, take a handful of those same soft rubber pellets, chuck them in and, um, you know, just tell everybody, well, this is what it's going to be like. Do you do that? Well, no, we don't do that. We'd never do that. Well, of course you wouldn't do it. So why is this, you know, the intruder, this hyper-realistic, why are you creating drills where you, it is in the best interest to not only exempt students with disabilities, but probably everybody from a drill like that? Because, you know, that, that'd be the same, you know, if we're, we're telling everyone, hey, when you get your driver's license, by the way, at the DMV, we're going to have you sit into this device which is going to simulate like a 20 mile an hour accident without a seatbelt. You know, you kind of see those sometimes at fire departments during open houses and stuff. We don't do things like that. But yet these systems, as, as you said, they become so vetted. And I had a friend of mine in, in a large school district was really, you know, a voice of reason in his administrative team saying, you know, we, we, can, we can do very effective drills without traumatizing our staff and our students. But the neighboring district was doing the hyper-realistic drill and getting all of the media. And the district next to them, and pretty soon, they just gave into it. The school board wanted it. And they said, this is what we want you to do for the drill. They did it. And that's terrifying for me because, one, it, it's not based on science. It's not based on any empirical research. I've read the studies, actually of the groups, the participants, they've also indicated the flaws of the studies. For example, they don't know if any participants had any prior trauma in their life, you know, if they were in a car accident, if they were in a fire, anything like that. They're not identified, removed from these these groups. But um, we're, we are creating this situation where these drills are just what catches the media. You know, it's, and it, it's also, again, what parents, in my perspective, want to see. So many bollards, for example, the the things that stick up like tusk in front of schools after the you know the um, attacks where vehicles have driven up on sidewalks and things like that, they create enormous hazards for not only people uh, with mobility um, needs, wheelchairs, um, for example, in in the school district where I live and my daughters go to school, they they put some up in front of the buildings which already had porticos with supports. And I looked and I measured and they cleared by about two inches, the minimum requirements for wheelchair. And I, it just totally was unnecessary, unneeded. Uh, but, we, but we end up, 
I, I read the studies and I'm like, Ohio, the Ohio Transportation Department came out with a study late last year, said we have people on bicycles getting killed because they're hitting these things. We have runners in cross-country meets who run into these and they're killed because the person in front of and they said, why does this happen? How could somebody run into a, a bollard? And it's, well, because somebody in front of them was occluding it from their view and they moved to the side and then they hit it. But we put these things in front of schools thinking this is this is safety and and yet, you know, a frustrating thing is out of $3 billion, the school safety industry, we have 55 million students go to school every day. Of that, as you indicated, Jim, you know, maybe 8 million students identified with disabilities, depending upon how you look at, at the numbers. Um, but yet we have 90% of these dollars go into fortification and... 10% of these dollars go into things like the teaching situational awareness and helping IEP teams be better, helping law enforcement police to understand students with disabilities and how they might respond and have special considerations during sentinel safety events into identifying threat reporting systems, how to integrate. So like 10% goes to that. 90% goes to the fortification. Um, so we also have our priorities really messed up and the funding is going, it's getting more out of balance if that's hard to believe. <laughs> um, and nobody funds research. So as a researcher in student safety, that's pretty much on my own or it's white papers through organizations like What Three Words, which is geospatial mapping or some others that, that support my work. And just that I do that on my own. Otherwise, it's not out there. So... Just, you know, your, it, you your know, thoughts it, on it that. Is, it is, well, it's really challenging. And a part of it you know, is, is the school mentality. It, it isn't isolated with safety. Um, you know, it's very much a, a school mentality that, you know, when a problem arises, let's reach out, you know, the, the let's reach out and find the expert, which, you know, is anybody who's from more than 50 miles away and has a PowerPoint. Right. Um, and, and a website. And, uh, and, you know, do they have a package that they can sell us that we could say, oh, well, we bought this, it solves the problem. And we see it in, in dyslexia. You know, the, the people will go out and they will implement, you know, some sort of a computer-based reading training that has absolutely no evidentiary basis. You know, there's never been a study showing that that program helps kids with dyslexia learn to read. But they'll point to it and they'll... You know, say, oh, he spends an hour a day and on the computer by himself. You know, that's how we're we're helping him. Um, it, it's very much a mentality, and to some degree, I think that our school systems have have moved away from the very things that make kids the safest, which is teaching resilience and common sense. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's very much a don't question what we're telling you spoon feeding process everything's organized and systematized and the more that people try to fix it the worse it seems to get because you know we we have common core now because we can't really trust teachers anymore so we need to have it very you know very specific of how you learn how you think how you solve a problem you know i my daughter's a senior this year, but a couple of years ago, she came home and had a problem that was an extra credit, and it was a math issue, and said, well, well you know, let's go through this. I'll show you how you approach this problem, and, you know, she came back next week. I said, so how did we do? I said, we got an F. <laughs> she says, 
I said, well, <laughs> we, we, we were wrong. She says, no, our answer was right. She didn't like how we got it. Right. I went, well, when you get out of there, you'll get to the real world. They won't care how you get the answer if it's right. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's, you know, that's a mindset that seems throughout the school system and it affects the safety end as much as anything else. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's some of what, you know, having the opportunity to preview your book, um, it's just an uh, amplification of the problem. Many times the person who has the ultimate decision-making capacity knows the least about educating kids, the person that got elected to the school board. Right. You know, it's very typically an introductory level political position for somebody who might want to, you know, next be mayor or city council. Um, maybe they've got a kid in the school. Maybe they don't. But, you know, very seldom do you see somebody who's a experienced educator or a trained administrator, an expert in some area, even if it's finance, um, that's sitting on the school board. You know, it's it's five, six, seven moms and dads. And, you know, after it goes through the teacher to the principal to the superintendent, they're the ones that get the ultimate decision-making capability. Um, you know, so that that sort of parent mindset in many times is also top down. So you have parents on one end driving it and parents on the other end making the decision. And too many times the decisions are based upon show rather than actual results. Um, and that's the, that's the practical aspect is, you know, how do you, how do you teach resilience and problem solving? Um, Cause those are the things that keep you safe. It's much easier to buy a package and put makeup on the kids and have a giant show. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and you're very, very right in terms of the, you know, it's a very specific thing. I mean, I've been through lots of those. I've trained with law enforcement. I've, you know, done drills, knocking down doors and shooting with simunitions and, 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 but, you know, I've got the background and experience and I, I enjoy it. It does not traumatize me. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that's going to be the same thing for everybody. Um, you know, I've lived a very real world life and, uh, yeah, I'm comfortable with things. So it make other people very uncomfortable. Um, and you have to understand that, you know, it's, you know, particularly dealing with uh, disabled kids. Many of them are very, very sensitive. Um, you know, that's one of the misconceptions. Uh, you know, they're very, you know, kids on the spectrum you think of oh they have no empathy they no i mean i know a lot of people on the spectrum both child and adult they're some of the most caring people you'll ever meet and they're very impacted um you know i've talked to kids that get caught up in you know the latest internet craze of the world's ending on tuesday because right. of some and 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 seeing the genuine terror in their eyes of of you know well well, I won't see after Tuesday. It, it's just crushing. Um, but that's all the more reason that they need to be prepared to understand this is all about, you know, something we're doing so that we can be safer. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a dramatic, the, the, you know, anytime things are done out of desperation, the odds of them being thought out and done well reduced pretty dramatically and you know obviously nothing is more traumatic than the thought your child is in danger and 
So we have outcries from parents and from groups, each with their own agenda, um, to do something. And that's falling on the school boards, the teachers, the administrators. You know, they want something that they can take out there for show and tell that makes it look like they're doing something. Um, and what you said is is very much a contributor to the problem. You know, they don't have something where they could say, hey, studies have shown this sort of program right. dramatically increases the ability of a student to deal with a difficult situation. Um, so what do they want? What do they get instead is they get glitz, um, cool pictures, cool brochures, uh, visible things you can point to uh, that probably have no impact whatsoever. Yeah, Jim, I, I did computer security before, you know, in, in working with the uh, React, the high tech task force here. And, you know, there's sort of that mindset there. Oh, we put in all these obstacles and virus protection. And yeah, but if you spent a little bit more time working with your people and convincing them not to, you, you've got them changing their password every six weeks now. Now tell them not to put it on a sticky note onto their desk drawer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, wow. I So this has been phenomenal, and, and I want to start bringing to a close because I, I, I know you have an extremely busy schedule, and, and Jim and I worked uh, for about three weeks just to get this, this time slot available. So this has been incredible. Um, I, I want to come back and touch on one point you had about um, peer buddies, because I, I think that has such an important role for safety when we get to the induction process of what happens when a student moves into school in October and they haven't received whatever safety education training drills that the students have at the start of the year, the, the value of that buddy system. But I, I went to uh, school safety conference. And this was a conference that was attended more by school safety, quote unquote, experts. And now there's different programs you can enroll in and get certificates and things like that. And I'm like, well, <laughs> okay, you know, I guess. But um, one of the experts gave a presentation and it was very unsettling to me. And here's how it went. So it was about 90 seconds long and he started out um, just let it play. It was a PowerPoint played for 90, about 90 seconds. And, um, it showed headline after headline of, uh, you know, school shooting here or parents concerned. And, um, are we, are schools out of control and violence in schools and just overlaying headline after headline at a faster and faster pace with this cinematic music in the background. And then, um, little snippets from news reporters who, always jump on this you know you can it's not hard at all to get a news reporter to give the first take on something and not the accurate take so he had put this together and it it it, it just became crazy headline 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 in, in in blurb and whatever and then after 90 seconds it stopped and the room went dark and then the the lights brought up and he was standing in front of everybody on the stage with his looking downward and for about 20 seconds and then he looked up and he looked at everybody and he said ladies and gentlemen this is the state of school safety in america i'm like well okay <laughs> i don't think so but um but i i 
thought about his presentation, and what I call that is I call that headline research. All it is is you're just going through. I can, I've done that. I've set Google search to pull up all of the headlines on school shootings every day. And at two o'clock, I get an email and here are 10 headings from the day. Um, and it can be something, you know, like not necessarily there was a school shooting, but, you know, a school shooting drill next Tuesday at New Hampshire High School or something like that. One even was like school shooter best in state history during basketball tournament. Like, okay, you know, but it, <laughs> But um, but that's what he had done. Now, everybody in the room, you know, no one was buying his product because everyone was pitching their own products. I was there more or less just to kind of get, get the feel on what contemporary, you know, safety was, was like from the vendors. What's a new thing that they're approaching with, you know, schools. But had he given that same presentation to an auditorium in a school district, um, one week after a Parkland, and it doesn't matter if it's in Florida, he does it in Wisconsin, does it in Arkansas, does it anywhere, or a Newton, or, or anything that's a, a Sentinel event that's caught the news. He gives that presentation and stops and immediately goes in and says, I'm selling bullet-resistant film, or I'm selling this product, or I'm selling whatever product. It's sold because everybody in that audience, those parents are going to demand that the school purchase that product. The administrators will probably be on board to some extent, but he's made that sale right then. If he stopped and, and did nothing more than just said, here's what I have up on stage I brought with me. These are fortifications that make schools safer. So you're not the 112th headline up on that PowerPoint. He's done. He's done his work and it is so crazy that way and people don't vet anything. They look at that and they get terrified. They they feel it, the rhetoric, and, and they get nervous and they feel we have to do something. And the other part, too, is if you can say, well, the school district, you know, 18 miles over purchased this, that's instant vetting. If you can get anybody within your proximity who's done anything, even if it's where they've given them a special deal or whatever. So um, I want to come back and, and maybe close this with a point you brought up which I think is super helpful, not just having a mentor for, not it could be a teacher, but let's say a student. Student comes in and, they, and they're assigned a peer mentor of how to do things around here. From So new student starts in October, let's say student with a special need, or it could be any student. I mean, I think it's just a good practice, but someone who is with that student says, here's how we do our drills. Here, wh what questions do you have? And, and, um, the value of having that mentor available and just part of your induction process. One of the things I do when I consult with districts, I always work on induction. That's uh, almost um, so uh, induction and making systems accessible to students with um, special needs. And I do that through a qualitative process where I'll sit down for 40 minutes and say, um, I'll, you know, we'll read parts of the handbook. What did this mean to you? What, and, or what happens when there's, you know, um, a safety drill? How do you talk about it afterwards? Um, if someone was to start here tomorrow, how would you explain to them how you do an intruder drill? How would you do that? And then I just record it and code it out, and then we talk about it as an administrative team or safety team afterwards and said, yeah, I mean, kids, here's what they understand, and here's clearly what they, they don't understand. Um, 
but come back maybe from scouting of that that mentor because I think that's a huge plus that doesn't again cost schools anything and it's super valuable. Well, I, I think it's a it's actually a, a double fold value because you know, part of the mindset here, if you look at all of the things that are being sold to the schools, you know, it, very much the fortification process and the the metal detectors and the the bollards and all of that is this mindset of of the 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 threat from outside. But the reality of school shootings is that it's not a threat from outside. Um, almost every time, it's a threat from inside. And the the mentoring process you're describing does a lot more than just prepare that kid to be part of the drill. It's part of being part of the process and the culture in that school. Um, you know. If they really want to fix this, no amount of arming is going to do it. Um, it's seeing all the signs that were there and ignored or missed uh, beforehand. I mean, th- these are not typically your classic terrorist situation. These are almost always a student, uh, whether they're mentally ill, whether they've been bullied or tormented. Right. Um, you know, the, the these are inside threats. Um, and and the changing school culture of having mentors and having uh, interpersonal relations and knowing who the kids are around you and having kids more reliant on each other and themselves and less reliant on the one out of 30 that's sitting in the front of that classroom uh, probably would do more to turn this around than any amount of armored cars and bulletproof glass would ever do. it, you know, it, it's but that that's the thing that what I've seen and I've seen a lot from kids is that they never fail to surprise me in the way they step up. Um, kids are are almost unequivocally better than adults with other kids with disabilities. Um, they are. Yeah, I could think of a hundred examples with my clients, with my own kids, with uh, you know friends' kids that you know the 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 next generation if we manage not to to screw them up too much uh, is bringing a lot to the table um and we do too much buffering where they don't learn to be independent interdependent on each other they don't learn to work as teams they don't learn to solve problems um and something as simple as having a, a big buddy program would make such a difference um because it adds to everybody. You know, the person that's the, the the buddy to that disabled child is getting as much as that disabled child, and everybody around is benefiting from it too. I mean, the one thing I think we are learning is that, you know, the the most successful models are very inclusive. The more we can figure ways to bring all kids of different skills together and have them spend more time working together, the better it is for them and the better it is for everybody. Um, and I don't see the safety issue as being dramatically different from that. You know, the idea of at the time of a drill, you're going to partner up with somebody, and then when someone new comes in, you immediately get paired up. Um, you know, it's a very practical, but also a very realistic way to deal with the constant influx of new people, new students, new you know, substitute teachers. Right. Um, you know, to have a little bit of uniformity there and to, you know, that interpersonal connection and that responsibility for each other 
uh, is a lot more of the answer than any number of, you know, bulletproof backpacks. Yeah, I, you know, we are completely aligned with that position. Um, I talk about the 2009 Centers for Disease Control report on school connectedness, which um, echoes a lot of what you just said. And, and the report has been updated since then, um, again, indicating the same themes, which are research-based and go into if, if the more students are included, the more students work together, the safer the environment is, the less absenteeism there is, um, higher academic performance, and just all of the metrics that you want to see in a school population benefit from that school connectedness model. So it's also one of these frustrating things when we do have a, a very solid document, longitudinal research, meta-analysis out there that everybody seems to forget it forgets that it exists or, or doesn't access it. And then we go way off onto these wild tangents again of let's bring in the drama club so we can do this, this drill and that the news is going to cover. So um, that, that was a frustration when I, when I wrote the book, because I didn't necessarily feel that the resources weren't out there. I just felt they were being ignored. And yet, you know, you'd have this, you'd have two branches from the government, issuing competing, you know, positions and guides and statements and things like that. So, but ultimately, if you drill down into where the empirical data is, where the research, the, the peer research models that comes in the school connect is connectedness, as you indicated, in, inclusive models, and just the benefits that that's going to ripple throughout your entire school community. So um, I'll, I'll close just on my side, Jim, when I, when we had our students, um, at the School for the Blind, they were outside of the building as the second um, alarm came in. So it was another ladder truck and another pumper. So if you're blind and you're on the sidewalk, um, you're recognizing these not only by the sirens, but of course everything is rumbling underneath you with these you know, multi-ton vehicles. Afterwards, the next week, in, um, when we were interviewing the students, we brought in groups of four to six students and and staff kind of intermingled um, and, and did maybe four or five groups, so maybe a total of 18, 20 students and maybe four staff for about 40 minutes. And we just talked about this, you know, what had happened and, and got to a point of um, what questions did you, did you have or, or if this happened again? Um, and every group said we knew that when the alarm sounded, we knew how to get out of the building. You know, we knew we'd been, we practice, you know, we, we had fidelity in our drills. We knew how to get out. And we also knew that where the sidewalks would be through orientation mobility and, and things like that. And also that students and teachers would, would help students who might not have the capacity to fully process what's going on. But because they'd been, they had been participants in drills, they understood that this was happening and, and you know, they were being, um, assisted out of the building into a safe location. But the one thing that came up, and I just shook my head because I, I just thought, you're completely right. Everybody is completely right. They said, after 30 minutes, when the second ladder truck came, or, you know, the, the, the trucks came in, um, we wish somebody would have come out and told us more specifically what was going on. Because it's the student, there's, it's a dorm environment. So students live there 
And of course, now you're wondering what's happening possibly to my possessions. They understood everybody was safe. That was communicated right away through everybody. Very robust two-way communications. We had practices. Everybody knew everybody was safe. But they said, we just would have w- wished somebody would have told us more what was going on and, you know, kind of the time frame of what to expect. And about an hour later, the, the building had been ventilated. Only certain parts were affected. Students were able to get their things, go home. We staged the buses a little bit away. It went very smooth. But I said, we, we would have never picked that up, one, without a survey. Or, or a survey would have never picked that up if we, not, if we didn't do a qualitative sit-down with students. And they helped our practice. They helped inform us. And, um, yeah, they were thinking in an area that we totally weren't thinking. We, we weren't trying to keep this information from them. It just didn't cross our minds to go and to sit down and, or, you know, to work through the adults in the group and say, you know, pass this information on that the, they have to check the roof out to make sure because some of the stuff had been vented onto the roof and make sure that there isn't you know, any hot ember or anything on the roof. Everything looks fine. This is just... You know, this will probably wrap up within the next hour. The firefighters said we'll be able to go back into the the building right now. Yet they can hear the fans. They're getting some of the smoke out, but there isn't any structurally. You know, this was very, it was contained to like a mechanical area. Um, And I left and I was just so proud of the students speaking up and, and saying that and very respectfully and informing that process. And I'm like, but how many how many places really do this? How many people really do the qualitative sit down and just letting people talk and taking notes and recording and transcribing? And that's where I try to do that. When I work, I, I help people bring this awareness of, you know, there's this whole qualitative aspect of you're going to learn a lot from your student body and your, your staff. If you just allow them an opportunity to talk about these processes, you write it down, look at it afterwards and take the themes I don't know. I'm not a big fan of surveys, uh, Jim, at all, um, because I just don't think survey constructs are developed very well. And I always grit my teeth at somebody who said, well, don't worry, I can do a survey in 10 minutes and we can get school culture. I'm like, oh, no, no, you can't. You can't do that. No. So don't try. Um, but just just an ending to that story, you know. Uh, you remember Mark Twain, he- his statement was, you know, there are three types of liars, liars, damn liars, and statisticians. <laughs> right. um, you know, it, it is. G- getting valid information is, uh, is really difficult. And, you know, they spend a lot of money trying to design surveys so that they'll be valid. And they're trying. Um, but, yeah, there's no substitute for sitting down. And, and you hit it right on the head. You know, people want communication. If you look at any disaster situation – one of the first things that develops is some type of communication. We had, you know, huge fires on the California coast here a couple of years ago. And one of the first things that happened was somebody set up a Facebook group and everybody was posting updates on what road was closed and what roads were open. And you know, yes. that was the best source of information better than any government run organization, better than any fire department, you know, that was where people were learning what was going on. Um, you know, you see the same thing in almost every disaster. One of the first things that forms is how do we get information? How do we share information? How do we learn, you know, for everything from, you know, the walls in 9-11 of the pictures of the missing. You know, that's one of the first needs people have, um, sort of like you said, you know, 
you can deal with almost anything if you know. The unknown's always frightening. Um, and realizing that that's the problem, you only learn if you sit down and talk to people. I mean, that's in all of the operations I've done in law enforcement. Every case I've tried, you know, it's the sitting down at the end of it, even if it's over a, an adult beverage, and going, man, I didn't expect that was going to happen. What do we do next time? Right. Um, you know, that's where the learning process takes in. Right. And to remind people, too, that um, process, you know, not everything is going to be linear. In fact, very little is linear. So if you said, what do we do next time? It just means let's talk about our process. It doesn't mean that we did something wrong, you know, that we have to to assign this went wrong, this went wrong. It's like, well, no, I mean, we we evolve, we learned. Now we're going to look at our process. We improve process. Outcomes will always improve. And, and that's another point. People, um, I'll hear them say things to me like, well, this is where it went wrong or this is where somebody did something. So, okay, let's kind of like back away from that language and perspective and go back to the process and system. Because again, if we can improve process and system, which I believe we always can, the outcomes improve and the outcomes get better. So, wow. Um, well, James, any anything closing? Any any words for the audience, um, for parents who have uh, children with disabilities and how they're interfacing with the school and maybe some takeaways on safety at the next IEP meeting? You know, even maybe that they bring it up of, hey, can you tell me, about the school safety drills and how my child participates in those. Maybe even, you know, just, just putting that question out on the table. Yeah, I, I think you've hit ex you, you're exactly right. And for parents, the, the, the biggest thing at the IEP meetings is the power comes from asking questions because information is, is power. And, you know, something as simple as, you know, you know, explain what does a normal day look like for my child? And, you know, what are they included in? What aren't they included in? Is there a way that they could be, you know, more included in what's going on in the school? Um, you know, to me, that's such a critical factor that benefits everybody involved. Um, and, and, and every time I'm at a meeting, an IEP meeting, one of the things I'm always looking for is that crossover with peers. You know, if, if you know, can they sit down with you know, a, a peer mentor, make and hang posters for the school dance, work at the school store, um, you know, deliver coffee to the teachers in the morning. That's, you have a right to your child to be included as much as possible with their peers in their education. Um, it's hard to say this, but don't be intimidated by the schools as experts. They're experts in education, but you're experts in your child. And you bring as much to the table as they do. Um, and obviously something as important as safety planning, it was every bit as much important as to, you know, as, as whether or not they can, you know, write a proper five sentence paragraph with an introduction and conclusory sentence. Um, and th think about, you know, we, you know, the, our office works on what we call a target-based theory. You know, we encourage parents to have a vision. 22 is the exit from special education. You're eligible through 21. You know, develop a vision of your child at 22. You know, what can they do? What can't they do? What might they need support in? Because that vision is what everything we do is driven by. How do we get them there? 
and we want it to be, you know, ambitious of, of, you know, my dad was a fighter pilot and, you know, he, he used to talk to me about one of his uh, jobs was he ferried supplies to the British during the world war two from the coast of Maine to great Britain at night under radars over the Atlantic. And he, he described Amazing. it as hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Yes. You know, but, but he, one thing he'd always say to you, say, well, you know, how often do you think I was off course during those flights? And I, little kid, I'd be like, well, God, I hope never. He goes, no, you know, most of the time. <laughs> really? It's, it's important to know where you're taking off from and where you're landing. In right. between, it's all a matter of adjusting to what right. life throws that's at great. you. You're right. I love that. And, oh, you know, and to me, that's the, that's the thing is, is if you have you know, have a target in mind for your, for your child and everything else should be driven by how do we get them there? Yeah. And that's going to include everything, not just can they add, can they subtract, can they write a sentence? You know, what are they going to be able to do as part of our society? Um, and I think that's what I, I encourage parents in and absolutely having them included in every aspect of school safety and safety planning is part of that. Yeah. Jim, I have nothing else to say. That was an incredible wrap up to our uh, podcast. Uh, that was, <laughs> that was phenomenal. Um, so thank you so much for the time that, that you've made available for having this discussion and for, you know, <laughs> giving, uh, I, I think, multiple perspectives to educators, to parents. And this is important. And, and, and this is very much uh, something that I'm hearing more and more from educators, more and more from parents that they're struggling to understand how school safety, especially um, interfaces with students with disabilities and interfaces with school systems and IEPs and so forth. I think we did a, a very good job of, of working through those. And you brought many, um, you know, wonderful pieces of advice and, and ways for people to kind of step back and look at things from a perspective maybe that they haven't taken before. So this has been um, an education for me. I have notes. I'll go back through uh, things that I want to personally follow up on this. Um, so it's always a benefit when I not only can enrich uh, the audience, but I can walk away from uh, an episode, uh, just a, a much deeper uh, resource of information myself because of the a tremendous guests that I've had. So Jim, thank you so much and uh, continue to do the great work that you're doing um, in California and the impact you're having across the country with students uh, with disabilities and parents and school systems. Thank you very much, David. And thank you for everything you're doing. Also, it's a, uh, it's always tough to be the one out there pointing out the emperor has no clothes, but you know, we're really thankful that we have people that are willing to do that. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD.
And remember, the truth will keep you safe.